We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. From the Gospel of Luke. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Now I'm going to stop reading the passage right there because although Simon Peter supposedly responds, you are the Messiah, I personally have a hard time believing this out of left field answer wasn't just added in later by evangelists looking to advance a particular agenda. I do believe though that Jesus did ask this question, who do you say that I am more than once and his own answer to this question was always mysterious at best. But starting with the words ascribed here to Peter, the church sure has taken great pains over the centuries to answer it for us in ways that cemented its own imperial power and control by making Jesus a demigod and reducing his message to dogmas and creeds we had to intellectually assent to in order to be saved. Now, just so you can get a glimpse of what we're missing in translation, the chant Joe led for us just now were the first few words in Aramaic of what we in the West have come to know as the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. And as you heard, the six lines Maria read are just six possible interpretations of the Aramaic words because Aramaic is a mostly dead and deeply nuanced, multi-layered and complex language very much tied to the ancient culture in which it was spoken. So pinning down the meanings of these words can be a challenge. Now, author and Aramaic scholar Neil Douglas Klotz tells us that the typical translation of this line is, if not outright wrong, very misleading. A boon, he claims, is more a process than a being. It's not a father. It's not a mother. It is an activity of creation, always being created and recreating. And this process in Aramaic is the bashmoya, which means it's moving somewhere. It has a direction. It has a purpose. And it's also within us, within everything that we consider to be reality or that appears to be reality. And we ended up with the translation our Father, who art in heaven. I think you can see that when we eventually, after many translations, shoehorn the very nature of an ancient culture's concept of reality itself into a line like, Our Father, who art in heaven, we're gonna miss a lot. And we're going to completely miss the point when we think that praying such a prayer and reciting all the creeds and intellectually assenting to all the things we're told about Jesus is what our lives are all about. So considering all this, it's actually a wonder we know anything of what Jesus taught, even more so anything of who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, over at Poland Baptist's website, they have a great quote that can help us begin to recover from the trauma of the spiritual abuse so many of us have experienced in our lives. We consider what the church has had to say about Jesus less important than what Jesus had to say about God. 
And I agree with this. But understanding what Jesus said about God isn't the most important thing. What Jesus did to come to know a God about whom he could say anything meaningful at all matters much more. And it's how Jesus was on the other side of that work of inner transformation that matters even more than that. So, our understanding must be rooted in something far deeper than a determination to stand on the word of God, whether that word is a deep and rich Aramaic one or the stripped down and oftentimes poor English translations. Now, thanks to the mystics throughout history and the wisdom teachers of our own time, I have left behind the imperial church's conception of Jesus as a Lord and Savior we must worship and have come to think of, I've come to think of his earthly incarnation, as one of a singular conscious master wisdom teacher. He came into this world at a turning point in history, a devout Jew trained in the laws of Moses and the traditions of Judaism, perhaps even spending some time with the Essenes, a Jewish mystical sect of his time. And he lived on the Silk Road, where he had access to Eastern as well as Western ideas. Now, all these currents informed his learning, which probably began pretty early in his life. You uh, remember that time his parents left home from Jerusalem without him, not really realizing for a whole day that he wasn't with them? Next time you feel like you're in the midst of a parenting fail, remember this story. Then they went back and they found him in the temple and he was like, yeah, what's your problem? I was pretty busy here, I was learning and sharing wisdom and stuff. So I imagine he really didn't want to go home and work for his father's carpentry business. And maybe he did wind up working with him, and maybe he didn't. But either way, he had to be quite learned by the time he was, had reached the age of 30. And with all this intellectual knowledge and wisdom in his head, he discerned the need to live into his purpose for being here on earth, to call humanity to awaken from its sleep. And before he could do that, though, he had to wake up himself, to put his mind in his heart, as the Eastern Christians would say, to fully access the wisdom that was deep within him. He had to be spiritually evolved enough at that point to have developed an observing self, a self that could see what he had to disidentify from before his real self could run the show. So, before his ministry got rolling, Jesus went to the wilderness for 40 days of fasting, praying, and meditating. And when I was a kid, this story f was really fascinating to me. I, I guess I could buy that Jesus walked on water, changed water to wine, and raised his friend from the dead, but going without food for 40 days? That was miraculous. But as an adult who has undertaken the practice of water fasting myself, not only do I know it's quite possible to spend 40 days without food, but I also know that when you do it with intention for even just a few days, especially in conjunction with contemplative spiritual practices, you are going to elevate your state of consciousness. Now, as the story goes, Jesus is tempted by the devil while he's out there in the wilderness. He's given the opportunity to turn stones into bread, and he says, no, thank you. When he is encouraged to jump from the top of the temple and let the angel save him, he says, nope. And when he's offered the chance to rule over all the kingdoms of the world, he says, no, and by the way, away with you, Satan. What was he really saying when he said no to those things? And to whom was he speaking? He wasn't talking to an external demon. He was talking to his own inner demons, his fully human false selves. He was basically practicing the welcoming prayer that we prayed earlier. I let go of my desire for safety and security. I let go of my desire for esteem and affection. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of all the things that cause a human to sin, and I embrace a way of being that is suffused with and driven by the inner light. 
In the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus doesn't say a word about who God is until after he clears his lens of perception, releases his false ego-driven compulsions, and raises his level of consciousness to the highest of heights. You cannot access the divine within you when your ego is in the driver's seat, and Jesus couldn't either. Some people don't believe Jesus ever had such compulsions because we've been taught he was born without sin. And maybe you don't believe he had such compulsions either. But I can't imagine why else he would have spent 40 days fasting and praying in the desert if he didn't need to die to self. When he emerged from the wilderness, Jesus was grounded in three centered self-awareness, meaning in the full release of his egoic compulsions, he was able to fully integrate the, his three centers of intelligence, his head, the mind or intellect, his heart, where we pay attention to our emotions and feelings, and his body, gut, or the movement center, where we are conscious of physical sensation. Does this remind anybody at all of the Enneagram? Now, regardless of which number we are on, on the personality Enneagram, or in which triad that number resides, in our contemporary Western culture, we pretty much operate unconsciously from the one place where we tend to assume consciousness lives, which is our head. Even threes and eights tend to value analytical thinking and rationality while often overlooking the wisdom of the heart and the gut. But it's only when we are able to fully integrate these centers of intelligence that we can access a higher state of consciousness. We just can't access our deepest knowing using our brains alone because that's not where our deepest knowing can be found. At best, the intellect of the mind is 33% of what we have to work with in growing into our full potential as human beings and in accessing the spiritual life force that leads to powerful transformation. If Jesus was capable of fully integrating these centers through the contemplative practices that we know can get all of us there, then he must have been a very compelling human indeed. Grounded in his being, fully awake, radiating pure love, absolutely living into his oneness with the divine. So throughout the rest of the Gospels, we are told of Jesus doing remarkable, if not miraculous, things. He gives sight to the blind. He heals the lame and the sick. He tramples social barriers. He softens hearts. He practices radical inclusivity. He champions the poor and the oppressed. He warns the rich and the pious of their spiritual poverty. He calls out institutional injustice and challenges earthly authority from a place of authentic authority, deep, deep within. Sure, he performed what some might call miracles, he taught powerful lessons. He told meaningful parables. But he wasn't doing these things to demonstrate how to live a life of virtue. He wasn't doing these things to get people to worship him. He wasn't doing these things to found an organized religion that would eventually take over the world. No. He was doing these things because he was operating so fully from the divine life within him that he couldn't not do these things. And in doing these things, he was calling people to wake up from their mechanical ways of living to live consciously from the power of the inner light within. And the reason min Jesus' ministry took wasn't because he was such a good preacher of sermons or teller of parables or performer of miracles. Nobody fell in love with Jesus and left behind their whole lives and families for good ideas, good stories, or even what seemed like divine magic tricks. What Jesus taught and what Jesus did only matter because of how Jesus was. It was that Jesus modeled in his being the things he was teaching, and his followers wanted to be able to participate in and with that being. They could ground truth, the desirability of doing the things Jesus was teaching because they'd been adjacent to its being lived out. They could feel it and taste it, and that was the most compelling thing they'd ever encountered. 
he was fully human and fully divine, and he lived into both natures completely. In him, they encountered God, who is absolute reality, who is the great unity, in a way that set their hearts on fire. And then he said, guess what? This is how you can be too. Jesus repeatedly said, follow me. He never said, worship me. And contrary to what our poor translations would tell us, he didn't even say, believe in me. Back to that Aramaic again. Klotz tells us he never actually said, believe in me. He said, believe like me or have the same trust that I do in the reality of all that is as though you are with me and within me. And they could feel it in their bones, this oneness. I am the vine, you are the branches. A boon, may they be one as you and I are one. I am the light of the world, he says in the Gospel of John. You are the light of the world, he says in the Gospel of Matthew. To borrow words from Richard Rohr, light is less something you see directly and more something by which you see all other things. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the light, what he's really saying is see how I am and become like I am. And if you have even the faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains and you can do even greater things than I have done. You will see and know in your deepest being the great unity, the universal reality, the great I am, God. And he got killed for this, you might remember. The Pharisees, the high priest, Herod, Pilate, they were adjacent to how Jesus was too. And institutional power doesn't find such things compelling. Institutional power finds them dangerous. Despite their best efforts, there wasn't much the authorities could do to stop someone living so fully in the flow of ultimate reality. Add to that his constant call for others to follow him and be like him, his insistence that others could be like him, in fact were in their essence like him and could do even greater things. Well, how in the world can you possibly manage an empire when you have no ultimate power over the people in that empire? And so when the time came to silence him, Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He told his disciples to stay awake twice. But of course, they weren't yet conscious they weren't even awake when they got there. His friends abandoned him and he said, I feel abandoned and alone. Welcome. Then he asked to let this cup pass because even a fully conscious human suffused with divine light would prefer not to be tortured and executed. And then he said, I let go of my desire to change this situation. Welcome. Not my will, but yours. Which again, if you were to dig into the Aramaic, you'd realize this wasn't the second dude in the Trinity meekly submitting to the will of an angry, vengeful first dude in the Trinity who demanded a blood sacrifice for the salvation of humankind. He was with full conscious authority, simply surrendering to reality, to what is, to what was to come. So when Judas showed up, he said in his heart, welcome. He surrendered it all without resistance, not as a head-centered strategic move, but as a heart-centered act of self-sacrificing love informed by his gut-centered intuition that allowed him to understand the profound significance of his actions in the grander scheme of spiritual transformation. It wasn't even what he did that mattered so much as it was how he did it, how he was when he surrendered to it. And so, 
in an act that astounded everyone who witnessed it and continues to captivate us today, Jesus went to the cross and emptied himself, poured himself out in love from a posture of utter humiliation and a place of divine vulnerability that, as far as we know, had never been known before. He gave his life for us. He surrendered everything, just not at all for the reasons we were told he did. The Romans thought that killing him was the solution to their problems, but after he died, we are told he rose from the dead. And the church, again working very hard to tell us what we concretely needed to believe about Jesus, insisted upon a very literal flesh and blood bodily resu resurrection. But even in the paucity of our English translations of the scriptures, we can see hiding in plain sight that's not how it happened. All the resurrection stories are mystical, He's not recognized until he speaks. He says, don't touch me. He appears out of nowhere, even moving through walls. These very real and mystical encounters were what transformed the hearts of a bunch of dolts who really didn't grasp much while he walked the earth. After these encounters, and I can only assume a good deal of contemplative practices of their own, his disciples were also readily willing to lay down their finite lives for the sake of a universal love. They came to a deep knowing in their own three-centered awareness that they too were fully human and fully divine. And this was also compelling, again, not the teachings, but the way of being of those who followed Jesus, that before the institutional church was established and began losing its way, they were able to effectively pass down the zeal and this whole and holy truth for several centuries. And Richard Rohr calls being aware of our participation in this universal unity Christ consciousness. Christ, Jesus, excuse me, being fully Christ, but Christ not being limited to the person of Jesus or even the Christian faith because it's transcendent. Christ was in them, Christ was them. These early followers continued to willingly die first to their false selves, live lives that were conscious and awake, drawing others to these lives of joy and grace and peace, and then surrender those very lives with equanimity and with Jesus as their guide. And the Romans, again for centuries, were baffled and stymied. They couldn't extinguish this faith of love being poured out even when throwing these people to the lions. I mean, if you kill it and it keeps rising again, what can you do? Their only solution was to co-opt the weak links in the chain, those self-professed Christian leaders who weren't awake and grounded in their three-centered awareness, to agree to be converted to an institutional and imperial religion that has distorted the good news that Jesus actually proclaimed. And over the ensuing centuries, the institutional church certainly has gotten many things wrong. But just like the imperial Romans, they couldn't extinguish the divine light within the human heart. They didn't even get everything wrong because light finds a way in the darkness. You can't squelch God, even when you mess up the translations of the sacred texts even when you scare people with hell, even when you excommunicate or kill the supposed heretics. Countless monks, mystics, and martyrs, Christian and non-Christian, I might add, have lived deeply contemplative lives and followed the Jesus worth following, putting their minds and their hearts, integrating all the centers of their beings, and shining forth the divine light within, moving others to do the same, and surrendering everything, even unto death. Because when you kill Christ, Christ just keeps rising, keeps moving forward in ever new arisings, 
always being created and recreated again and again and again. So, Jesus asks, who do you say I am? And I'm interested in hearing your answers here in a bit. But to me, the far bigger question is, who does Jesus say we are? One of my favorite wisdom teachers, Cynthia Bourgeau, puts it this way. Like most of the great spiritual masters of our universe, Jesus taught from the conviction that we human beings are victims of a tragic case of mistaken identity. The person I normally take myself to be, that busy, anxious little I, so preoccupied with its goals, fears, desires, and issues, is never even remotely the whole of who I am. And to seek the fulfillment of my life at this level means to miss out on the bigger life. This is why, according to Jesus' teaching, the one who tries to keep his life, i.e. the small one, will lose it, and the one who is really willing to lose it will find the real thing. Worshiping Jesus as a deity, joining an exclusive club of similar believers, and then thinking we've done all the work we need to do to be saved because our Savior takes care of the rest is about as far from the truth as things could possibly be. This is work, friends. We're all universally in this together. And the really good news of the gospel is that when we do this work, when we are willing to lose our small lives here to become conscious participants in the flow of the great unity, we will know deep within us that yes, each of us is fully human and fully divine. That we, whether we count ourselves Christian or agnostic or Buddhist or Muslim or atheist or Hindu or Jewish or anything or nothing else at all, are, we, are the ever unfolding second coming of Christ, the body of Christ, interabiding in the very heart of God's own unfolding and growing in love, each of us capable of a radical and blessed transformation in our very being that is so deeply compelling, others will be drawn to it and realize their own yearning to wake up and consciously participate too. And that, I am convinced, is the only way we can truly transform our world, just like Jesus did, only greater. Do you want to be a conscious participant in this great unity? in this universal transformation of consciousness. Our world needs it now more than ever. And we all know the default mode. We all live the default mode to varying degrees, driven from the ego self, preoccupied with the small life things that tend to rule the day. One can be a quite good, noble, loving, and virtuous person and live that way. It's just fine. It's how most people do. But if you want to satisfy that deep yearning within you, know that you can surrender to the bigger life. It's not easy, but it's simple. And it will only cost you everything. And so, Abun, indwelling divine, great I am, may we lay down our small lives, awaken to our bigger lives, and find ourselves reborn in you as you live in us. Amen. I know that the idea of embarking upon a life of consistent contemplative practices can seem daunting, 
especially when you might not have a lot of clarity about what the practices are, what they're for, or how to work them into your routine. So to that end, and also for the overall good of the life of our community and beyond, we're going to be holding our very first on-campus contemplative retreat two months from today. You see all the things we're planning here, so it's going to be one of those retreats you'd easily drop 50 or 75 bucks to attend elsewhere, but there's no cost to attend this retreat because we want to make sure this is accessible for everyone. <laughs> However, <laughs> we do not have a budget for this, so talk about walking in faith, right? Uh, we are very happy to accept donations in any amount, basically so we can cover the cost of a good lunch for everyone, ample coffee, snacks, and whatever few supplies we might need. So we hope it's going to be a truly life-giving event and something we'll do each fall in addition to other potential retreats and workshops throughout the year. So um, on the next slide, you can click the QR code here to find more information in the registration link. Uh, it's also in the app, so you can find it there under events. And if you have any questions about this at all, you can reach out to me directly. You can find me in the app as well. So in a moment, we're going to dismiss the folks on the live stream. And by the way, folks on the live stream, uh, I know a lot of you, and I call you my friends. And I would love to see as many of you as are able to attend this retreat as possible. So if you can clear your calendars and get creative with your planning, think about heading to Raleigh and joining us. Uh, it would be a wonderful way for you to be in person and spend time building relationships with the folks here in your spiritual community on the ground. And if you are watching us and not a live stream regular, note that our remote folks get together after the lesson each week to talk and connect, and you are warmly invited to join them. So just click the Zoom link that's in the YouTube comments there. I think my friend Cindy is leading today. And join in. You'll need to enter a passcode, and that code is 1417. And with that, folks in the room, if we'll place a hand on our heart as we do each week to remind us that we are, each and every one of us, fully human and fully divine. And in our divinity, we carry love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, what we call the fruits of the Spirit. They are in us because we are carriers of divine breath. And if you would, extend your other hand to our city. As we go out into the world this week, let's look for opportunities to share this divine light with the people with whom we live and work and go to school and all the people we encounter in every moment, moment, taking every opportunity that presents itself to repair and heal our world. Amen. Okay, folks on the live stream, you are dismissed.
If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.